You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. We began the last lecture by drawing attention to a passage in which Thomas Aquinas distinguishes four orders, and one of them was the moral order that we talked about last time. The first one is the order of things in themselves that is established by the Creator, and knowledge or science that bears on that would be theoretical knowledge, and the apex of such knowledge is that wisdom that comes to be called metaphysic, that is the ultimate explanation of everything in the universe in terms of its first causes. Some lectures ago drew attention to the opening panorama of Aristotle's metaphysics, all men by nature desire to know, and saw how in spelling that out and analyzing that claim, he moved slowly but inexorably towards the view that I've just mentioned, namely that the culminating wisdom is to know, understand all things in terms of their ultimate cause, that is God. So that theology, oddly enough, is the ultimate discipline or a component of the ultimate discipline in philosophy. It's a paradoxical fact that our minds, which are made to know the first cause of all things, have such difficulty in acquiring that knowledge. That is, the panorama to which I again referred indicates that it's only in a painstaking, time-consuming way that we can move from knowledge of the things around us to knowledge of the ultimate cause of those things. This is an acquisition. Now, when we reflect on what is called metaphysics, we are, as we know from other considerations that we've gone into, that there is a plurality of philosophical sciences. And when we talked about the order of learning, of course, metaphysics came as the ultimate activity towards which all philosophical endeavor is tending. This is the ultimate discipline, first philosophy, as Aristotle spoke of it. But what is the difference between this science, wisdom, metaphysics, first philosophy on the one hand, and the sciences that come before? Well, I don't mean what is the difference between it and logic, or what is the difference between it and ethics. We can invoke that passage about the four orders and get a kind of quick answer to that. But what is the relationship between this culminating theoretical science, metaphysics, and other theoretical sciences, such as natural science and mathematics? This is the way in which the matter is approached in the course of the metaphysics of Aristotle, or whenever Thomas Aquinas takes up this question as to the nature of the ultimate and defining discipline of philosophy, how does it relate to, how can we distinguish it from other theoretical sciences? Uh, here in a previous lecture, volume 50 of the Leonine edition of St. Thomas. I just wanted to show you the kind of dimension of the volumes that make up his collected work. But as it happened in that particular one, as I mentioned, we have the commentaries that Thomas wrote on Boethius. And these are early works of Thomas during his first stay at Paris. And in commenting on the theological treatise of Boethius, that is called the De Trinitate on the Trinity, Thomas had occasion, because of the way in which Boethius goes at this, to talk about the distinction between natural science, mathematics, and theology, metaphysics. What is the approach to an answer to that question? How do they compare to one another? One of the things we notice, and Thomas insists on this in his comments on Aristotle and elsewhere, if there weren't certain proofs that had been established in the course of doing natural philosophy, natural philosophy would be wisdom. It would be the culminating discipline of philosophy. What are these proofs that indicate that it is not a sufficient science to be called or to fill the bill as far as being wisdom goes? In the course of the physics of Aristotle, Thomas notes, having made the analysis that we talked about a uh, time or two ago, 
matter form as being the constituents of anything that comes to be as a result of the change. That's the least we can say about it. It's true, but it's the least that we can say about the product of any change. Then Aristotle, at that level of generality, goes into, well, what do we mean by causes, if causes are going to be invoked to explain the changes that take place? What do we mean by motion? I indicated what his definition of motion was. There's an analysis of what time is, what place is, and so forth. And finally, at the end of this work, in Book 7, but more particularly in Book 8, we have the proof of what a prime mover and I've indicated what the bare bones of that proof look like, but it's the upshot of everything that has gone before in this work of the physics. And what the argument comes down to is, look, what we are aware of in the changing world requires that there be something, some cause that is not itself subject to change, an unmoved mover. Every mover in the cosmos in moving is moved. Huh? When I place my hand on this podium, the warmth of my hand is transferring itself to this cool surface. But of course, the cool surface is acting on my hand as well. So there's a kind of reciprocal causality. That's what he means by a moved mover. He means that. He means more besides. What is meant by saying that God is an unmoved mover is that he is a cause unlike any of the causes in the set of natural things that we devote ourselves to in natural science. That proof, in other words, is the realization, the basis for the realization that to be and to be material are not identical. To be and to be changeable are not identical. Without that proof, we would not have any secure confidence, conviction, certainty that being has any application beyond material being. Furthermore, as Thomas likes to point out in this connection, if in the course of doing natural science, in the course of reflecting on intellection, we did not come to realize that understanding is not a material process, it is not a physical change. It depends on physical changes antecedently and so forth, but the thing itself, understanding, thinking, is not a physical activity, it's not a physical change. We've alluded to that in terms of the problem of Latin averroism and so forth, but there is a controversy about that as being Aristotle's view. Thomas thought it was. Thomas Wright, it's Aristotle's view. Anyway, this is another instance in which we have a proof of something that exists and which is not material. I suppose even on the averroistic interpretation, you could say that. So in two instances, as Thomas stresses, in the course of doing, natural philosophy. We prove that there is something that escapes the characterizations of natural things as such, the prime mover and the human soul. Okay. Now that indicates, or that opens up the possibility of a science beyond physics, meta ta physica, after the physics, and also different from, different from mathematics. Now some people, when they talk about metaphysics, will say, well, I mean, this notion that you first of all have to prove that there is something immaterial before you can have a science of metaphysics, why don't we just invoke intuition, huh? And say, I have an intuition of being. And I've had colleagues who are eloquent in presenting this particular view and would invite students to look out the window, say, at a tree and be struck, not simply by it being a tree, but by its existence, by its being. Well, that's a wonderful thing to be struck by, but you're not being struck by anything other than material being. Huh? I mean, the tree is a material being. Its existence is to exist as a tree and I'm not referring this to any colleague, the idea that somehow just by being enthralled by the existence of material things, you somehow grasp existence as such, as something not tied down to material things, you don't find anything like that in Thomas Aquinas. There are no intuitions of being in that sense in Thomas Aquinas that would simply put us into possession of certain knowledge that there is immaterial being. The only way we can arrive at that knowledge is by way of proof. And you can see how this sits with what we have been seeing as the procedure of Thomas's philosophizing, which he takes to be 
tied down to our natural procedure in knowing. The things that are obvious to us are the material, sensible things around us. If we're going to know anything else, we're going to have to come to that knowledge by way of proofs which use premises which are truths about sensible reality. There's no other way. And what we've been saying about Thomas's language, of course, is hooked on to that realization as well. So step one, when we think about what metaphysics is for Thomas Aquinas, it's metatafusica. It comes after the physics, and there wouldn't be any need for a science of being as such if being were identical with material being. Only if we have these proofs do we have the conviction and basis for which we can start a science that will have its subject being as being. Being as being, this is the phrase that is given as designating the subject of metaphysics, the culminating wisdom towards which the whole of philosophy, all the philosophical sciences are aimed over a long period of time, as we've been saying. This is a puzzling phrase, being as being. In the introduction to the metaphysics that we've referred to any number of times, we are told that this painstaking process is going to terminate in knowing all things in their first cause. So all things now here, being as being, this is what the phrase is meant to pick out. And it's puzzling for a number of reasons, because if we say we want to look at everything now in terms of there being a being and not in terms of there being this, that, or the other kind of being, that suggests that there is some single sense of being that is operative in this quest for knowledge. And a moment's reflection will lead us to realize that, as Aristotle put it, being is said in many ways. That is, it is a term that has a plurality of meaning. And the question always has to be, when it is used, what sense do you have in mind? Much as a certain use of healthy would lead us to ask, well, what use do you have in mind, if we're puzzled about it? But with a term like being, with any analogous term, we're always going to have to know, well, what sense of the term am I supposed to be thinking of when you say you are interested in everything insofar as it is a being? You can see what I'm warning against. It would be wrong to think that being as being is some kind of univocal phrase, as if it applied just as such and with exactly the same meaning to anything you could mention that would count as among the things that are. So that the first step in understanding what's going on in what is called metaphysics and whose subject matter is said to be being as being is what sense of being are we to have in mind in understanding that phrase. The recognition that it is an analogous term of course enables us to move beyond that puzzlement and to get some response to it. What we have seen about analogous terms is what? They have a plurality of meaning but it's an ordered set there is a primary meaning, which is the controlling meaning in that set. So that is the example of healthy that is invoked ad nauseam. The healthy dog is what we primarily mean by healthy, and if we say his food is healthy or exercise is healthy, we are invoking that primary sense of healthy, and this reference to it, this proportion of those later meanings to that first meaning, that's what we mean by an analogously common term. So if we say that being is an analogous term, then we're going to ask, what is the primary meaning of the term? And the answer is going to come substance, usia. Why? Because if we say that colors exist, or that dimensions exist, or an activity exists, these are properties or characteristics of some thing, some thing whose existence is quite different from theirs. We early on talked about a child learning how to play the piano. Huh? And being able to play the piano, that capacity, that exists. That's an existent capacity of the little child. Huh? But the way in which the child exists is different from the way in which these incidental properties, colors, capacities, skills, and so forth exist. So when we consider that, as Aristotle goes on at great length, as Thomas goes on at great length, we think of the various ways in which we use the term being, what's going to emerge is that the focal meaning, the primary analogate of being, is substance. So then once this is established, we would say, ah, oh, well then the science of being as being is tantamount to the science of substance. And that's true. But 
the problem shows up again right away because well if we ask ourselves now is substance a univocal term does substance have the same meaning let's say and to anticipate could substance have the same meaning as said of a material object and as said of an angel or of God and of course we would hesitate I hope and say well that doesn't sound likely so that it's going to look as if if we want to talk about substance, we better concentrate first of all on undeniable substances, that is substances, things, autonomous things that we could not possibly have any question about, physical objects. And this is the great puzzle of the procedure in metaphysics. It begins by saying there is a science that studies being as being and the properties that belong to it as such. This is a direct quotation from Aristotle at the beginning of the fourth book of the Metaphysics. And he goes on to show it's different from natural science, it's different from mathematics, and it's consequently, we do have a new science. This is the science that we are seeking, as Aristotle said. Then he goes through what I've just gone through. It's being as being, but being is said in many ways. It has a plurality of meaning. But it's an analogous term in Thomas's terminology. That means it has a primary sense, which is the controlling sense in understanding its other and secondary uses. What is the controlling sense? Substance. We seem to be home free. All we have to do now is concentrate on substance. But when we look at the actual analysis, if when we look at what Thomas and Aristotle actually do, it can be astounding. They say, let's talk about physical substance. Let's talk about physical objects. I thought we were in metaphysics. What are we talking about material substances for? The reason is that what we have to do in order to get a sense of the term substance that will not be restricted to material substances and will be applicable to those things which we, on the basis of our proofs in natural science, know to exist, will be applicable to them in a different but related sense. So it is not the case that when metaphysics is undertaken that we come up with a common meaning of being and we say this applies to everything no matter what it is. Huh? That would be a univocal understanding of the term being. And there have been people like Duns Scotus who thought that we had to do that. Because if we didn't do it, we wouldn't be able to have a proof for the existence of God because there wouldn't be any traffic between created and uncreated being. That isn't the way Thomas proceeds, and he's much closer in this, I think, to Aristotle than Scotus is. Thomas is saying, look, the only way we are going to get an understanding of substance that does not get tied down to material substances is by taking another long look at material substance. And if you were to look at the 12, 14 books that make up Aristotle's work that is called the metaphysics, you're going to find book and chapter and passage on and on that looks to be indistinguishable from the kind of talk that you run into in natural science. And this can be, as I say, puzzling if we think that he ought to be talking about being in some kind of univocal sense and just say, let's talk about that and then that will be applicable to all the things that are. And it might be that that misunderstanding is invited by the way in which we begin if we don't pay too much attention to what actually is being said, we're going to talk about being as being, and the suggestion seeming to be, that there is a sense of being that will apply to anything whatsoever that exists. And I suggested that, that would be pretty soon disturbed when we watch the subsequent analysis and the reminder, well, being is said in many ways, being is an analogous term when we get the substance. But substance is not a univocal term as applied to material and immaterial substances as well. So we have to ask ourselves, how can the term substance be applied to something other than a material thing? This is always the project. How can we move from what we're sure of, the sort of thing that makes up the natural object of the human intellect, sensible things, how can we move beyond that? And if you look at the analyses here and in here, being where in the commentary on the metaphysics that Thomas wrote, or in the early work that he wrote on being and essence, De Ente et Essentia, you will find that this is precisely what he is doing. 
he is moving, first of all, he looks first of all at material things and tries to get clear about them and understands them in a way that enables him to extrapolate and talk about non-material things. Look at on being an essence in that regard and see the movement from material substance to angels to God. That is a kind of sketch, as I mentioned several times ago, that Thomas gives of metaphysics. And it draws attention to what I'm drawing attention to here, and that is that we have to earn the right to talk about immaterial things, even though we're convinced there are things that exist apart from the material order, in order to be able to speak of them sensibly, we have to go through this analysis of material substance and find in that analysis a warrant for using this term of the immaterial. And what Aristotle does, what Thomas does, is to say, look, form in the material substance is act and matter is potency, and act is always prior to potency. I'm moving very swiftly here, but this is the way the analysis goes. So they suggest this, in the material substance, form is more substance than the matter. Now, that's a funny way to talk about physical object. In one sense, as if you could have one that would be just form, but that's what the recognition is pointing toward. If there were an immaterial substance, and if in material substance form is more substance than matter, couldn't we then talk about or understand the immaterial substance as form, as form, as a form not immattered but subsistent? So that it takes a long time, I've done it very quickly, and you might be convinced by it so easily, given this elusive presentation of it, you might wonder why Aristotle took so many books of the metaphysics to establish this. But seriously, if you read what goes on in the seventh book of the metaphysics and the eighth book of the metaphysics, you'll see what I'm saying. The attention that is paid in wanting to talk about immaterial substances, the necessary attention that is paid to material substance with a different motive now because we're trying now to move beyond them and to say things about now immaterial substance. So that's the way, I think, of describing what we're doing in metaphysics. The talk about it as a science, as I mentioned that opening of the fourth book of the metaphysics, there is a science which studies being as being and that which belongs to it per se. This is to invoke the logic of demonstrative science that Aristotle developed in the posterior analytic. And we might, on that basis, think, well, this is going to uh, be a science that we will be able to identify in its procedures that will look very much like what? Euclidean geometry. And we're in for a huge surprise, because while the metaphysics is spoken of, and seriously spoken of, in terms of those demands of a demonstrative science, it is so elusive in its intent and in its object that it seems to fall short all the time of that kind of methodological rigor. And we are told that at the beginning of the metaphysics as well as at the beginning of the De Anima, that things which are most knowable in themselves are least knowable by us. But a little bit of knowledge and even of an imperfect kind of those noble things is preferable to a great deal of knowledge of lesser things. That's a false dichotomy, of course, because what I'm stressing here is the only way we are ever going to know anything grounded about things other than material things is by grounding it in our knowledge of material things. This understanding of metaphysics, that of Thomas Aquinas, is of a science that, while it is described in terms of the canons of demonstrative science, the formal requirements of a demonstrative science that are developed by Aristotle in his logical writing, it doesn't neatly fit in to those categories at all. And we always get the sense that we're doing something that is extremely elusive. There is a recurrent phrase in Aristotle's metaphysics, the science that we are seeking. And anyone who reads those 14 books is going to be struck by the fact we always seem to be about to do something, and when are we going to do it? And when we set out to do something, we seem to turn back and look at things that we've presumably studied already, and why are we taking this further look at them? And my suggestion has been 
there is method in this madness. We are looking now at material things in order to get some purchase on them that will enable us, some grasp of them, that will enable us to say, this term, which applies most obviously, substance, to material things, can be used to talk about these things whose existence we've gotten an intimation of in those proofs that I alluded to in natural science, so that we can talk about usiae coristae, substantiae separate, separated substances. Now that's an achievement. It's not just, well, here are material substances and here are immaterial substances. No, it is known and named off of our analysis of material objects, physical substances. And that's why the procedure of the metaphysics can seem to be so glacial and sometimes even leaden because Aristotle is trying to do this in such a way that it works. He, like anyone, could talk about, well, the transcendent and the beauty itself and so forth. He was a Platonist for 20 years. And in his early writings, he has the same tendency as Plato does to talk as if goodness and justice and abstractions like that are just sort of out there and that sometimes prior to the soul's incarceration in the body, it was just directly aware of those things. And when the soul was put in the body, it forgot them and learning is remembering these things. So Aristotle liked that too. But he came to see that the basis for talking about separated things in that way just was not adequate, that the arguments for them were inadequate to establish that there indeed are immaterial things, the platonic ideas, the platonic forms. Huh? But from the very outset, we can bet that Aristotle is saying, I want to be able to put that kind of claim on a firm footing. And that's what, as I'm presenting, his understanding of metaphysics as developed by Thomas, that's exactly what he's doing. He's saying, look, this is the way in which we can proceed. This is the way we can move from substance to separated substance. What the characterization, then, of metaphysics might be is this. It is a analysis of physical objects, of physical substance, in order to acquire knowledge of and a vocabulary to speak less obscurely about the divine. And I've deliberately put it in that kind of complicated way because, as I said at the beginning, it's one of the paradoxes of our existence that we have an intellect for the sake of knowing the first cause. And yet the first cause is so incommensurate with our intellect that the only way we can come at that knowledge is indirectly, obliquely, through knowledge of other things and by taking the names of those things we first know and extrapolating them of the immaterial and ultimately of God. So another way of putting this then would be to say that metaphysics is aimed at coming up with grounded divine names. In other words, a justifiable talk about God. And again, as I suggest, because of the familiarity of religious belief and the familiarity for Aristotle of Greek religion and the Platonic philosophy, it might have seemed that you could just talk indiscriminately or you could choose to talk about material things or choose to talk about immaterial things, as if they were equally available to you. And what Aristotle came to see, what Thomas endorses, is no, the only way we can come to some knowledge of the immaterial is through knowledge of the material. Now I'm, now I'm repeating here, but repetitio est mater studiorum. There's a reason for this, because I feel that if we don't get this, we're not going to get the sense of what metaphysics is for Thomas Aquinas. And it would be, I think, misleading to suggest that somehow he just has an intuition of existence or something, and that immediately propels him into the metaphysical order. Tole et lege, read him, and I don't think you'll find anything like that anywhere in Thomas Aquinas, and you will find at least something like what I'm insisting on here. So we could put it in this way, metaphysics is a search for the divine names. It's a search for the divine name. It's a search for the communia intis, as Thomas sometimes put it. That is the common notes of anything whatsoever, not in a univocal sense, but in the way in which terms that apply to material things can be extended to mean and to apply to ultimately God. In the first intimation on the basis of a proof that Aristotle has 
of God, he's called a prime mover. He's understood clearly with reference to the changing world around us. And uh, it might seem to be simply a negative way of designating him to say, well, he's not a moved mover. But we are indicating that he is a cause. So we're going to have to ask ourselves, what does the word cause mean as applied to God? And that kind of question is intended to underscore the fact, look, if someone asks us what a cause is, there are all kinds of things that we're going to refer to, and they're going to be right around us. The cue ball hits the eight ball and moves it. So that's what we're going to be in, and who, who uses the cue and so forth. We're going to talk about movers and in the world around us, get the notion of cause. Huh? That's where we get it. The term idea in Greek that is used for cause is, I'm told, used in courts as a witness huh, for what is under dispute, a way of determining, getting the why of the events that are under adjudication. A learner decide. That's not important. But what is important is this, that the term cause, we have to find out what we mean by it by looking around at its obvious application in the sensible world in our ordinary experience. And this is the same word, then, that we're going to use when we say God is the first cause. And the question is, how can we use this term whose meaning has been established in these ordinary, workaday ways, how can we use that to talk about God? And we can see we don't want to say, the hesitation would indicate that we don't want to say, well, he's a cause in the same way that the pool player is a cause of moving view. I mean, we can see the problems involved with that. So even calling out a cause raises this enormous question as to how a term can be common to God and to creature cause. And we're going to say it's not univocally common. Some people were tempted by the thought that, well, they don't mean the same thing at all. They're just equivocal. Moses Maimonides, the great medieval Jewish Aristotelian, toyed with this idea that our terms never tell us anything about God. They only tell us what he is not. So don't expect, when God is called a cause, don't expect that to tell you anything about him. It just tells you that he isn't like something else. Well, as Thomas responded to that, that would make it seem that it didn't matter what we call God, because you can always say it doesn't mean what the term means, but it's denying something of it. But it does matter what we call God. And the discussion that I'm embarking on now that will take me into the next lecture is, in effect, a divine name, because I'm describing metaphysics, again, remember, as the inquiry which is meant to issue in a vocabulary that will enable us to express our knowledge of God in an intelligible way. And when we do that, we're going to see that we are talking about the use of words whose native habitat is ordinary human experience of the material world and of ourselves and extrapolating those and using those to talk about God. That is the problem, so to speak, or the fact about of divine names. And we'll see that this is true not only, not only is this the case when we look at what philosophers have to do, we might say, yeah, well, the philosopher has to move in the way that you're talking about, and ultimately he hopes to know something about and be able to say something meaningful about God, and this is going to entail this kind of extrapolation, but isn't revelation different? Didn't we use that distinction in order to give a sense of the distinction between theology and philosophy? That theology is based upon revelation, God telling us things about himself. So isn't that different? Thomas says, no, I mean, look at it. He will say, when God speaks to us, he speaks our language. Well, maybe not Aramaic, may not be your language or Hebrew, but he uses a human language, and it can be translated into your language. And the words that God uses in the scriptures to talk about himself, many people are scandalized by the metaphors of the Old Testament, the way in which God is, he's a burning bush, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and so forth. And you wonder, good heavens, I mean, these don't seem to be very uplifting ways of talking about God. I mentioned in a similar connection in earlier lecture, the nature of Christ's teaching in the parables. And of course, the incarnation itself is an indication that when God reveals himself to us, he does it in a way that we can see and touch. Remember Thomas, he wanted to put his hands into the wounds and so forth. That's very human. I mean, we have to have that point of reference in order to 
go beyond the physical. The metaphysical is always beyond the physical, and it depends upon it for us in the way of understanding and in the way of learning something about it. And there's no difference in this regard, Thomas suggests, between scriptural language and philosophical language about God. In all cases, it is using words whose primary obvious meaning is not God, but things, creatures. Huh? And then the question that arises is, how can those terms be used to talk about God? This is the problem of analogy is, as I suggested earlier, just permeates the thought of Thomas Aquinas. We just cannot escape it. It's a feature of our language. It's a feature of our capacity, limited as it is, to come on the basis of our natural powers to some kind of knowledge about God. When Thomas talks about the divine attributes, he sometimes will say, well, you know, there are three kinds of terms that we attribute to God. There are relative terms, there are negative terms, and there are positive terms. And by relative terms, he means, well, if you say God is a cause, you're relating him to his effects. Huh? If you say God is the Lord, you're referring him to his subject. That's what he means by relative. If God had no subjects, he wouldn't be Lord. Huh? That seems to be the idea. If there were no effects, God wouldn't be a cause. So there is a sense in which these are relative to things other than God in the meaning that they have. Some terms are applied to God merely negatively. We say God is timeless. That's what we mean when we say he's eternal. He's changeless. He's unchangeable. He is not constricted to some particular place. And so he's everywhere, we say. These are negations of God, of characteristics, of physical objects. Huh? But there are some names that are used of God positively. When we say God is wise, we don't mean that he's the cause of human wisdom. We mean God is wise. When we say God is just, we don't just mean that he is the source of justice such as it is in the world, but he is just. And so, too, with any number of divine attributes, we are saying God truly is these things. These give us some sense of divine nature. So we're dealing here always, when we deal with the divine attributes or the names of God, with shared terms, analogous terms. Analogous terms we've defined as terms which are common to several things, but in a variety of meanings. They have a plurality of meaning in their different uses, but this is an ordered set of meaning. One of them is controlling or primary. In the case of names common to God and creature, the primary or controlling meaning of the name is obviously always going to be what that term means in discourse about the world and about ourselves and so forth. Now, it is the case that what is first in our knowledge is, of course, not what is most perfect or noble in reality, as I mentioned. What is most perfect in reality is God, the first cause. So when we say that the term that is common to creature and God has its controlling and obvious meaning as used to the creature, and then we extrapolate it and have to worry a lot about the nature of that extrapolation to God, what we can say once that is done is that what we're talking about when we talk about God, is first. So that the order of naming, where creatures are first and God is second, there's the flip of that is the order of reality is that God is first, and of course what we know first are second, or are creatures of God. So we have to, in that very way of putting it, we have to overcome the fact that what's obvious to us, what our language primarily means, are the things around us. And we want, as we work this extension of these terms to God, we want to make sure that we don't think that he's secondary in the order of reality in the way in which he's secondary in our knowledge. He comes only later in our knowledge. But rather, we reverse that process and say, in the order of being, he is primary and creatures are secondary. For Thomas, that is a distinction the violation of which, or the ignoring of which, will land one in his understanding of Plato. Well, if Thomas tells us, as he does, that the divine attributes can be thought of as either relative or negative or affirmative, it is clear that the application of analogy is to the 
positive or affirmative names of God. And these are shared names. Obviously, when we say timeless, we're not talking about a term that is common to God in creatures. When we say that God is infinite, non-restricted, we're not talking about a term that is common to creatures in God. We're denying a feature of So it, the problem of analogy certainly doesn't arise in the way in which it does, if it does, it doesn't arise in the way in which it does with positive names, where we are saying, God is wise, God is just. God is merciful, God is intelligent. The only way we can get hold of the meaning of those attributions is to notice that the terms involved, the attribute, are not peculiar to God. This isn't a peculiar language that we fashion, a theological language, to talk about God. No, what is happening, obviously, is that we're taking terms from the common domain terms that we learn how to use in very ordinary circumstances. We say of someone, he's wise. Socrates is wise. Take a safe instance. Or of someone, they're just. And we know what we mean by those things, or at least we can reflect on what it is that we mean by them. And then the question is, how can that term, meaning that, be applied to God? So again, shared term in the way in which healthy is shared by the various analogates that we talked about before, or in the way in which being is shared by the many things that are called being. Now what Thomas suggests is a kind of intrinsic analysis of the account or ratio or meaning of the term and suggests that it's the complexity of the perfection that is signified and the way of signifying it. And where you have an analogous term, you have the perfection, like health, which is in all the meanings of healthy, but the way of signifying it varies. The subject of health would be the way we would fill out the meaning for phyto. Cause of health would be the way we would fill it out for exercise and so forth. So we can think of a kind of form here with a perfection and then a blank for the way of signifying it. And what Thomas will give as a kind of summary statement about analogous terms is that they have the same perfection signified, but they signify it in different ways. And those different ways of signifying it are what generate the different meanings that we're talking about, one of which is primary and controlling. But what this enables Thomas to do when he has drawn attention to that kind of composition of a meaning, the perfection and the way of signifying the perfection, then he is able to avail himself of a technique that he learned from Dennis the Areopagite, called, after the time of Thomas, the pseudo-Dennis the Areopagite. Dennis the Areopagite is mentioned in Acts uh, as a convert of St. Paul. And the writings that Thomas is referring to as of Dennis are date from about the year 500. So we have a choice here between either thinking that this man lived an enormously long time or he is using Dennis the Areopagite as a kind of pin name and he can't seriously be taken to be this convert of St. Paul. Thomas didn't know the impossibility of this fellow being who he claimed to be through this kind of pen name and accords him, and not just for that reason, because Dennis's work are enormously interesting and rich in their content. What he learned to get back to, my reason for referring to Dennis at all, he had a technique, a kind of process that he thought we should go through in thinking about the divine names. One of the works of the Pseudo-Dionysius is the De Divinis Nominibus in the Latin. It was translated from the Greek. Thomas wrote a commentary on that. So he's very taken by and influenced by what Dennis had to say about appropriate thought about the divine attributes. They're both, of course, concerned not simply with what philosophers can say, but what we say on the basis of our acceptance as true of revelation, thanks to the gift of faith. What Dennis suggests is that we go through this process. We say, God is just. God is wise. We say that. That's the via affirmationis, huh? the way of affirmation. But then that is followed by the via negationis, and we say God is wise, but you know, God is not wise. 
meaning he's not wise like Socrates. I mean, Socrates had to get that way, and he might go gaga and lose it. Huh? So being wise and being Socrates are things that are put together and can be taken apart. But we don't want to say that God's wisdom is something he could lose or something that he gained. That isn't what we want to say. So we have God is wise, God is not wise. Now, that sounds like a contradiction, huh? The same person saying God is wise and God is not wise. That's why the analysis of meaning into perfection and mode is so important. What, what Thomas takes this progress to mean is this. When we say God is wise, we are emphasizing the perfection of wisdom. When we say God is not wise, we're thinking of the creaturely mode of having wisdom, acquiring it, being able to lose it, for example. So the next and final step is what is called the via eminentiae, the eminent way, where we say God's wisdom, or God has wisdom in a way that is wholly beyond our capacity to understand. So that the whole process ends in a kind of realization of the very limited way in which our knowledge of created wisdom enables us to get some kind of intimation of what God is. But it falls short of our being able to say, I see how wisdom and God are identical. What I see is that I don't want to say that they're separable in the way in which they are in Socrates. And that's the meaning of the assertion. It's not that I comprehend the wisdom of God. So this whole process, and this is the repeated reminder as we go through it, while we are successful in terms of analogous names, we're successful in getting some sense, some intimation of what God is, this always falls short of comprehension. We don't understand in any full sense what God is. Why? What's the fundamental reason Thomas gives for this? No created perfection exhausts the causality of God. There is an infinite incommensurability between any created perfection and the creator. So the created perfection cannot tell us something about the creator that locks into, well, that's what he is in the way in which in a finite cause, if we know what it does, that tells us pretty much what kind of a thing it is. And we might think that's relatively comprehensive knowledge. In God, that's always going to fail to be the case because of the incommensurability between the created effect and its cause. So that the recognition of the limitations of our knowledge is built into, built into our understanding of this culminating science of philosophy. And as I suggested at the outset, this is paradoxical. This is the whole point of philosophy. This is the whole point of our lives. If Aristotle is right, as of course he is, we are made for understanding. That's why we have a mind. We use it for lots of practical reasons and so forth. But basically, ultimately, what it's for is to understand the world and its source and so forth. So this is the drive of philosophy. In this, wisdom will consist. And the closer we get to it, the more we seem to be reminded of how imperfect this sort of knowledge is. Don't think that you are locking on to God in such a way that you can say, this is what he is, and so forth. We're always warned against that. And a kind of fitting humility is induced by the recognition that, as Aristotle said in a famous simile, our mind, relative to what is perfect in reality, what is highest in reality, is like the eye of a night bird when confronted with sunlight. There's just too much for us to understand. There's no way in which we can look at the light, so to speak, and just grasp it. It is always going to elude, and yet it will be the most desirable kind of knowledge that we can pursue. Again, Aristotle, a little bit of knowledge, even of an imperfect kind of the most noble things, is preferable to much precise knowledge of lesser things. But as when I mentioned that before, that is a false dichotomy, because the only way we're going to get that little bit of knowledge, however imperfect, of the divine is through our knowledge of lesser things. 
So the nature of human understanding, the path through which the human mind has to go, which has been laid out for us from the beginning in our appeal to the opening of the metaphysics of Aristotle, it's reiterated again and again and again, so that the aspiration of the philosopher is in many respects not going to be thwarted, but it's never going to be satisfied in the way in which one might wish. And for the pagan philosopher, that's just about all she wrote when it comes to that kind of realization. Aristotle is very cherry of entering into speculation about the existence of the soul after death, although he has mounted a proof for personal immortality when he's correctly understood. The only time that he gives much attention to the condition of the separated soul is in the first book in the Nicomachean Ethics when he asks, in effect, does the misbehavior of one's progeny affect their happiness? Huh? Now, involved in that, of course, is the assumption that they're happy, but their happiness might be affected by what their children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren do. And so it's a very puzzling kind of passage, and as I say, Aristotle doesn't pursue it. Plato, on the other hand, is eager to talk about the state of the soul apart from the body because he thinks that's the natural condition of the human soul and that this is merely an exile and will be released from the prison of the body and then the soul will be what it was meant to be, a thing itself, not a component of a human being, but a being in its own right. That, and Plato can be eloquent about that, and he tells us very interesting stories, muthoi, myths, about this, and it's as if the only way he can really point to it is by stories of that kind. And we find in other classical literature, in the Dream of Scipio, for example, the mounting of the astral ladder on the part of the departed soul, and we know in Dante, in the, the Paradiso, the way in which the planets figure as a kind of layers or steps on the way to the ultimate celestial empyrean. There are stories of that kind trying to overcome our inability to know the condition of souls after death. But in this life, at least, and say from a purely philosophical point of view, there is something dissatisfying about the upshot of philosophy. The whole thing is aimed at something that we just don't seem to be able to get hold of in a satisfying manner, and the reason is our capacity to know and what any knowledge that we have is dependence on sense experience. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.